Peter doesn't have time to deal with bullshit because how long have I been away from home? When I show up, my aunt is going to lose her shit. He's constantly worried about making it home, protecting his secret and protecting the ones he loves. Aunt May, basically, she is one note. Look, I appreciate that she's a little bit more spry than the dowdy, grandmotherly version that we are used to, and that she's a lot more fiery, but she has one reaction, which is, Peter, why are you like this? Oh, it's making me hurt her so you're grounded. That's her reaction. And then you get this one moment of insight into her character. How do you get it? The laziest fucking way you could reveal a character. The only lazier <laughs> thing Bendis could do is have her standing at Uncle Ben's tombstone and confessing all her deepest, darkest thoughts. Did you ever get in trouble with your parents, like coming home from being out too late with your parents? Dude, I was an angel. I was a perfect Asian angel. <laughs> Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Does whatever a spider can Spins a web any size Catches thieves just like flies Look out, here comes a Spider-Man Hey, Robin. Hey, Ryan. Welcome back. How was your trip to the multiverse of madness? It was great. I rented a giant molester van and took the in-laws on a road trip across California. Yeah, uh... (laughs) (laughs) Well, great to have you back, Ryan. For a while, I thought you would have no way home. Oh, I see where this is going. What? I I didn't even say anything, dude. I can read between the lines. Dude, take a deep breath. I have no idea what you're talking about. This is the part of the podcast intro where you tell me how excited you are about the next Marvel movie, Spider-Man No Way Home, featuring a youthful Peter Parker and a lot of money. And then you hijack our podcast where we are supposed to be reading some of the comic's greatest works, not their shitty movies and TV shows and reboots of those same shitty movies and TV shows. Ryan, you are absolutely right. That's that's not what this podcast is about. This This podcast is about the bonds of two grown men who are escaping the tragedies of the pandemic-y, omicron world around us as we bury our pain with alcohol in the story drama of character-driven comic books. Thank you, Roman. You make it sound like Brokeback Mountain, but thank you. You complete me. So how about we actually read something deserving to make this podcast great again? All right. Well, I really appreciate that. I can't wait to hear, Roman, what amazing story that we read this week. I'm Roman Segel. I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes who know that with great power comes great responsibility. Said the guy hiding in a basement to do a podcast while his wife is upstairs changing diapers. (laughs) (laughs) This week, instead of talking about the latest Spider MCU movie, we are actually going to read Ultimate Spider-Man by Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley. I'm going to allow it because of the sheer amount of Japanese manga body horror that I've subjected you to this past year. Tis the season. You bring the body horror, I bring the teen drama, baby. Though, to be fair, there is a lot of body horror in Ultimate Spider-Man. Bagley's cartoony style just makes it pleasant and palatable. (laughs) Oz formula for the win. So anywho, way back when, in the year 2000, Marvel Comics decided to once again reboot all of their comics into a new parallel continuity where all of their most popular superheroes would have their origins set in the modern world versus the swinging 60s when they were invented. Much of this would actually set the stage for, inspire, and influence the style of the popular Marvel Cinematic Universe a decade later. Who knew Robert Downey Jr. and Samuel L. Jackson would be portraying superhero caricatures of themselves from the Ultimates? 
The first comic to launch in this new line of Marvels was Ultimate Spider-Man, a reimagining of Peter Parker as a modern-day 15-year-old orphan and prodigy living in Queens. With the bite of a genetically modified spider, Peter's all-too-relatable teen trials and tribulations are dialed up to 11 as he navigates a world far too familiar to our own, grappling with the introduction of superpowered beings. Gone are the wheat cakes as Aunt May is now a spry middle-aged soon-to-be widow. Uncle Ben, rest in peace, was a former hippie with a ponytail, and Mary Jane Watson is the nerdy girl next door. And don't even get me started on Gwen Stacy and J. Jonah Jameson. They are excellent. And of course, there is our boy Peter Parker, who is a modern-day, anxiety-ridden teen prodigy who's grappling with the absence of parental figures and the lunacy of the real world he is thrust upon with his superpowers. What starts off as a very Dawson's Creek CW-style superhero drama quickly breaks out of classic origin territory and becomes an 11-year storyline that many say is among Spider-Man's greatest runs. Beyond some trademark disarmingly fun and quippy dialogue before it became a trope in the MCU, indie crime comics writer Brian Michael Bendis partnered with already established Spidey artist Mark Bagley for a multi multi-year run where the stakes were very real from issue to issue story to story arc something we don't actually see in superhero comics and we haven't seen in decades over the course of 160 plus issues we see peter interact with the world of growing crazy and again his anxieties are stretched to the limits in his very personal and professional superhero lifestyle since ultimate spider-man was an 11-year run a little bit longer than this intro read for this episode we'll only be reading (laughs) but only by a year For this episode, we will only be reading volumes 1 through 13, which represent the first 78 of 160 issues. Next week, we'll get through the rest, hopefully, seeing the series through its inevitable conclusion, which ultimately, no pun intended, introduces us to Miles Morales to take on Peter's mantle. So, Ryan, this is actually one of my favorite comic book runs of all time. I've been dying to revisit it since I first read it when it came out and concluded. And I think this is your first time getting this far through it. I'm almost afraid to ask, what did you think of Ultimate Spider-Man so far? I've always appreciated the Ultimates universe because it rebooted the Marvel mythology and and each of its major heroes without like the baggage of 60 years of backstory, some of which is good, some of which frankly sucks. So I'd read maybe the first three Ultimate Spider-Man collections around the time they came out. Pro- what is that? The probably early 2000s. And I really enjoyed them. And now I've read the first 13-ish episodes, volumes, trade paperbacks, whatever. And it's about 20 years later, and I can definitely see why I enjoyed them at the time. But at the same time, as a guy nearing his 40s, I didn't enjoy them (laughs) quite as much as I did back when I first read them, when I felt very, very fresh. However, I do really appreciate there is a real psychological arc to Peter Parker that doesn't quite exist in the mainstream continuity. As you mentioned with the Ultimates universe, one thing that distinguished it, like unlike mainstream Marvel, is that there are stakes. Heroes can die. What happens to Peter Parker at the end of this? I don't know. Doesn't seem particularly good, though, huh? <laughs> I That's something, upon reflection, like the two biggest things that i enjoyed back then was wow this is set in the real world and it's like what if superheroes appeared today for the first time how would we react and how would they react because they're just like us so that really worked because it was a world without superheroes all of a sudden they're here but upon this rereading it's to your point stake something we've argued about actually of all the arguments we have the one thing we agree on on this podcast is superhero comics have no fucking stakes and the ultimate comics have stakes It's a single continuity. When someone gets shot, they are shot. They're going to the emergency room. When someone dies, they are dead. 
Like, yeah, it's because I, I don't think they knew what where this thing was going. It lasted about 12 or 15 years before they shut it all down as like an alternate universe. But right. unlike past things, like what happened in the Ultimate Universe stayed in the Ultimate Universe. Yeah, the the first few years of the Ultimate Universe, and I'm talking about Ultimates, Ultimate X-Men, Ultimate Spider-Man, was much more grounded. And to be uh, clear, Ultimates was their version of the Avengers, yeah. which the Marvel movie Avengers was loosely based on. Yeah, That, I think, changed. I remember reading the... I, the Ultimates was the one I really followed. And then it became essentially like a weird mirror version of the Avengers, going back to all of the dumb superhero tropes that had made superheroes a little bit juvenile feeling, I suppose. But in the, the the early days of the Ultimates universe, and I include Ultimate Spider-Man in that as well, Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate, the Ultimates and Ultimate X-Men, it was definitely like this big breath of fresh air injected into what was beginning to feel like a very stale medium. Without ruining what actually happens in Ultimate Spider-Man, we'll talk about that for, I assume, most of these episodes. Like in the MCU, when Thanos snaps his fingers, that has repercussions for everything. So when a major thing happens... It's a major thing that happened in the world, unlike mainstream comic books, where it's like every other week, it's an end of the world scenario. And actually, I think one moment, I don't know if you got this far in the Ultimate Universe, like I was hopping in and out of it over the years, but they actually had a moment. They had a couple of moments that completely jumped the shark. And one was where Magneto from the Ultimate X-Men like floods New York like it is. And it's actually a pretty traumatic thing. And you're like, wow, okay, this is the Ultimate Universe. It's pretty traumatic. And then a couple of volumes later, it's just we forgot that this massive terrorist act happened. And and that was the jump the shark moment of the Ultimate Universe. I was like, oh, okay, you're going to be just like all the other superheroes. And to be fair, Peter, and I think probably because Bendis was one of the few writers who stayed on his title to the very end, unlike Mark Millar came in and did xyz for the ultimates warren ellis came in and did xyz for ultimate fantastic four pieced out you had all these creators come and make a mark and leave but bendis never left ultimate spider-man till the he actually end. i actually think it's funny that he does have an episode in one of the volumes called jumping the shark i think that's where wolverine <laughs> and spider-man switch bodies and he basically and actually i as slight as that episode was it was actually probably one of the most genuinely funny episodes there's this moment where bendis breaks the the fourth wall and basically says sorry this is the editorial assistance idea i'm just trying to string it out as long as i can actually speaking of jumping the shark for me it was in it was when jeff Loeb took over the ultimates and millar had been very very grounded had kept that kept it very grounded in trying to like contextualize the avengers or the ultimates within like the geopolitical climate. And then mm-hmm. when Loeb took over, it became just basically Avengers Superhero soup. Bullshit. Superhero soup. Yeah, yeah, he even had Thor speaking in that old Stanley Kirby dialogue, oh, I say thee nay thing. And I, that's when I realized, oh, okay, there's no reason for this shit to exist anymore. Okay, so let's... But okay, we've shit on the ultimate universe. Let's... Spider-Man. Like, uh... I... Okay, so this is one of those books, not the reason we do this podcast, like we explore lots of new stuff, but there's a handful of media properties, movies, TV, comics, that I've always wanted to go back and read. And this has been one of them because, I don't know, man, like I can't help but not fall in love with Peter and Mary Jane and like yeah. their story. And, and and like, so over, I started reading this over Thanksgiving when we knew we were going to read this for the end of the year. And I stayed up every night reading two volumes a night for a week. And the attachment is real, man. Like, I, it, it holds up. Yeah. 
That's like, that's like, so um, the Mary Jane Peter Parker relationship is really, really good. And I remember that really resonating with me. In fact, what I remember, even though I read this like almost 20 years ago, I do remember like their first kiss when he like confesses that when he shows her that she's he's Spider-Man. And it's this moment of really deep emotional intimacy that he would confesses to her. And that's the beginning of their romance. And I remember that over all of these years. And in retrospect, it's a little bit Dawson's Creaky CW type of stuff. But yeah. it also, and I think that's why it resonated with me when I was, I don't know, 18, 19. <laughs> you know, so, so now rereading it, it doesn't quite hit the same way. But it is a very memorable moment. And a moment that is really good at capturing the intimacy between these two characters in a way I feel has never really been captured in any of the other Spider-Man mainstream universe Spider-Man comics. I say that as if I have read every one of them. So, but what it, it was, well, because all it the other stuff the development. Yeah. It showed the and, development of that, of that. Yeah. It was the beginning stages of that relationship and it showed how it progresses from very deep friendship to, to romance. Well, I, I think part of, Bendis took a risk and everything is a slow burn because to back up a little bit, volume one, which is seven issues, where no spoilers here, the Spider-Man origin story, orphan Peter Parker lives with his uncle and aunt, gets these powers, chooses not to use them, his uncle dies. And and most Spider-Man origins, be it a movie, a TV show, a cartoon, that happens in the first 10 minutes, in the first 20 pages. And in Ultimate Spider-Man, it takes seven issues you play out the Uncle Ben relationship, you play out the teen drama of Peter dealing with all of these feelings and these emotions. And similar with Mary Jane, that moment where he chooses to reveal to his best friend that he has powers and that they confess their love to each other. That's at the end of like five issues, part of which is pure grieving from my uncle that just died yeah. a few issues ago. And so the, the decision to take a slow burn and make us wade through lots of dialogue and uh, exposition. It's worth it. Like the, the moments yeah. where shit hits the fan is worth it because it's been the slow burn where you've been planting these seeds over and over again. I think part of also that the reason that works so well is at that point, the Spider-Man origin story hadn't been overtold. Because we hadn't seen 10 versions of the movie, right? We hadn't seen. Yeah. And I, I don't think the Sam Raimi version had come out yet. And that's really the beginning of, okay, we're oversaturated with Spider-Man. So at the time, we really hadn't seen the whole great power, great responsibility dialogue, the death of Uncle Ben, the revenge Spider-Man exerts on the burglar. None of that had been really played out in, in a serious fashion. So this was the first time. Reading it now, obviously it loses its impact because there's been the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, there's been the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man, and of course, fortunately, the recent Spider-Man, they did not retell that. Probably because they knew that it was no, not necessary to retell. But You know, fun fact though, when the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie came out in 2002, I remember, because I was reading Ultimate Spider-Man at the time, Brian Bendis is listed as a story consultant on all of the Spider-Man movies. That probably makes sense, right? I'm guessing Ultimate Spider-Man did play a pretty big influence on the way they decided to treat like the the Spider-Man Mary Jane relationship in the in the Raimi movie. I would have, And also there's that there is of course that episode, that entire graphic novel Hollywood, right, where <laughs> they show the fr- they're making a movie with Toby Maguire, starring Toby Maguire. Bruce Campbell's yeah. in it. Bruce Campbell's yeah, in it. Yeah, exactly. 
So, so I, I feel like it, it really was stronger for me in the beginning, and then it started to sag a little bit. And I feel like they it became episodic where, okay, now we're going to do our take on Venom. We're going to do our take on Craven the Hunter. That's mm-hmm. And there, there are elements of that that I like. I like that Craven is completely ineffective, for instance. <laughs> TV star. Yeah. yeah and, and I do like seeing the tie between Eddie Brock and and Peter Parker. But at the same time, it almost felt like he's going through a checklist of villains that he should reinvent. And even Carnage felt that way. There's, of course, the one big moment in the Carnage storyline that which is i guess we just we have have to do spoilers is the death of gwen stacy she actually dies at carnage's hands and that's the big shocker there but absent that carnage as a villain is actually i think a lot weaker than the mainstream universe carnage because it he has no personality he's just like an entity that gets created exactly but 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 here's what i'd say to your point like every volume is let's hit a familiar spider-man beat and retool it to be modern but to me, that was the propulsion of the character drama. All of that yes. shit was the sideshow of the Peter, Mary Jane, and Aunt May show. Like yeah. I'm there. I'm there for seeing how they react to the crazy of the week. Yeah, I, I, I will say like that is the big turning point for Peter's personality, where he's always concerned about those around him. That what he does puts everybody in danger, which honestly isn't too interesting of a conflict. But it explodes with Carnage because Peter is directly responsible for the creation of Carnage. Carnage does kill Gwen Stacy. And it puts him into a much darker spiral. And I'm actually grateful that it's something that the series leans into. I I think a lot of times something tragic happens for a superhero and then they get over it because they have to fight the next villain or go on the next adventure. This series actually does show Peter Parker in mourning and lashing out and angry trying to process the death of Gwen Stacy and his role in in her death. On the other hand, I do wish he were, it was a little bit more interesting because his way of like dealing with it is basically yelling at everybody. I got tedious. Well, okay, so I, I don't disagree. But honestly, the one thing that really pissed me off is Gwen Stacy dies in volume 11. And Peter has his just moment of angst and anger at everything in the world. And then you get to volume 12 and it's like, hey, Johnny Storm's in high school. Hey, it's yeah, a human torch. Yeah. Like, like volume 12 pissed me off because there wasn't enough mourning of Gwen. And she gets a couple of notes. And to be clear, there will be more moments and beats of that. Seeds are planted. But I feel like there was this constant oscillation between real world fucking stakes. Yes. Really impacting Peter hard. And the snap back to, well, I got to have fun and I got to make some quips. And the one thing I did appreciate, though, so I think volume three, volume four, the Norman Osborn comes back as the Green Goblin and completely fucking tortures Peter psychologically and kidnaps Mary Jane and throws her off a bridge Gwen Stacy style. And the next volume is like back to normal. But by the end of that next volume, seven issues later, MJ is like. I have nightmares about this every fucking night. And then when her dad discovers the diary that she talks about the bridge incident. So there's consequences and real stakes involved. But every once in a while, I feel like Bendis forgot about them. Yeah, I agree with you. It's not consistent. When Johnny Storm comes in, suddenly it's it's all for yucks. When he switches bodies with Wolverine, it's again, it's like a slapsticky episode. So I will agree. It's not like he's in a consistent state of mourning throughout. It seems like sometimes the store, the the comic will drop that storyline for a little bit. But it, they, it does come back to it. When it go, does get back to like the main narrative, what's Peter's relationship like with Mary Jane? It does go back to, okay, he is actually in mourning. So even though they forget it occasionally for like maybe a couple of issues at a time, 
it does come back and it and i think that's why i forgave those lapses like those like you need that bit of comic relief right you have this really dark moment and then you need this this moment of like okay let's just breathe for a little bit and then you can go back to addressing the shit show that that happened before yeah and and it's almost like let's juxtapose this the one thing that this comic has that mainstream spider-man doesn't and to be clear mainstream spider-man peter parker does have fun with his job he loves his life even though his life is shit but man teenage peter parker loves loves being spider-man but when the mask is off and he's dealing with the stakes of the consequences of it he's riddled with self-doubt and why am i doing it he actually feels guilty yeah. for having fun with hanging out with the hot cat burglar while his girlfriend is going through ptsd right yeah that's one thing i like about spider-man is that and actually that's one of the reasons why i really like the first tom holland spider-man is that the guy keeps screwing up it's just a constant series of screw-ups and even though he tries his best he just can't help like messing up and part of that is just because he's so inexperienced and young and he's trying to take on too much and i think the bendis series captures that really really well i wanted to ask you something though about the characterization of gwen stacy and i actually had a bit of a problem with her and i was trying to figure out what it was and i i think i figured it out and i think it, it's it also one of the issues that it, her death is not as resonant as it could be it's definitely a shock when it happens because it comes out of nowhere but it didn't have i don't think the lasting impact and i just wanted to get your take on on that character and see if you agree as well <sighs> It's it's hard for me to comment. So let's talk before Gwen's death. I loved this interpretation, right. full stop. So in mainstream Spider-Man in the 60s, Gwen was actually Peter's first great love before he realizes Mary Jane has been there his entire life. And so Gwen's death, one of the few deaths that has stuck in comics, shakes Peter to his core as a human being. So for them to kick off Ultimate Spider-Man where it's MJ, it's always been MGA, she's going to be the best friend, she's the Joey to his Dawson was really nice because but then five volumes in you introduce Gwen Stacy like holy shit is this going to be a love triangle and it's not yeah. it's she even declares to MJ later on he's like my nerdy little brother i love him and uh, obviously Gwen has her own tragedy with her father and her mother and right. Aunt May being fucking awesome and taking Gwen in and it again becomes a CW drama this hot punk rock blonde girl is now li- living with Peter Parker so what i'd say first i loved all of those interpretations of Gwen Stacy for the Ultimate Universe. Ultimate Gwen Stacy is... I never really got to know a real regular Gwen Stacy because that happened in the 60s, right? When you and I started reading comics in the 90s. So we knew the mythos of Gwen. So to experience meeting Gwen was great. Now, her the tragedy of her death, it didn't sit well with me either. It felt too easy. It almost felt like cheap, but... She was a woman much- in a refrigerator? Yeah, they they refrigerated her, but this was before Kyle Rayner, and that became a trope. But it's a trope. Wait, was it? I'm I'm actually curious when that started. I thought that was before. Uh, So being refrigerated again, I actually don't know when that term was coined. But in the reboot of Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, his girlfriend, is stuffed in a refrigerator by a serial killer. Yeah, 1994. So this was actually before or after the Kyle Rayner refrigerator. Oh, really? Before it became. Yeah. Anyway, my point being, okay, so the trope had been established, but. In the context of Ultimate Spider-Man, where I think a couple volumes before, he gets shot and he has to be snuck into an emergency room. Yeah. The the randomness of the violence, Peter Parker is not invincible. His right. family and friends are not immune. So Gwen 
biting it. And I hate this, even though it's like a, a weird clone symbiote, blah, blah, blah. But for Gwen to just fucking die randomly felt appropriate for this universe. And I did not appreciate the volume after because the senseless violence in the randomness of Gwen's death, even Peter's lashing out at Kurt Connors after Gwen's death was really powerful. And for yeah. us to dismiss it just really, really made me angry. And I can't say too much more because I have read all of it, Ultimate Spider-Man, and you have not. So this storyline is not resolved yet, I guess is what okay. I would say. I would imagine it's not. I would hope it's not. My issue with Gwen Stacy, what you alluded to earlier, is that I don't think Bendis ever figured out fully what to do with her. She comes in as a potential rival, potential love triangle, but then it's more of a big sister vibe. And I feel Bendis oscillated between the two. I think a romantic love or the best or sister temptation. in the world or the best friend in the world. It, 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 they, they could all have been equally emotionally impactful with her. With That death could have been emotionally impactful no matter what relationship she had with Peter Parker as long as, as it was one filled with love and, and a close one. And because I think Bendis couldn't figure out what to do with her, she never really did much in the series. She was like the supporting character off She's to the an side accessory. Yeah. who would yeah. cry and then she would sometimes talk about her history but in terms of actually affecting Peter Parker's life and what he did either as Peter Parker or as Spider-Man, she didn't do much. Mary Jane helps Peter Parker out when he's been shot. She drives him to the hospital. She's there for him. Gwen Stacy is on the periphery. And part of that is because she doesn't know his identity. But even still, she's very much... But the moment she, she does... She does later on, yeah. yeah. And then she's killed. Even then, then she's killed. So we don't have time then, to, to work with it. Yeah, nothing really comes of it. There's no... There's, she's well, not really involved in any storylines, and because of that, she feels so much like a throwaway character. And what's really the impact is that she's Gwen Stacy, right? You're like trading off again of those of that history of this character in order to well, form. Here's, here's what, the we're going to push back. I don't yeah. disagree that she's portrayed as an accessory, and right. obviously she gets refrigerated, but. There is a major moment. She fucking hates Spider-Man. Spider-Man killed my dad. And that's a thing from the right. mainstream comics. Right. <clears throat> all, I'd, all I'd say is Gwen's story is not over. It may or may not deliver for you on where it ends up. So to I, I would say let's put a pin in this one to be okay. continued till, till the let's, next episode. Yeah. I'm curious but, where this goes or what developments arise from this. I would just say in the current income, from what I've read from volumes one to 13, the fact that she has not affected anything substantial within Peter Parker or Spider-Man life, or that she hasn't played like a prominent role other than as a supporting character undermines the impact of her death. But one, one thing I will say, something we said at the top of the episode is Bendis is playing a slow burn on a lot of these characters. The Gwen Stacy burn right. is pretty fucking slow so okay. far. And again, I am curious to see, like, I'm actually curious as I go back and reread it, I know the major beats of what happens with her story. I am curious as I go back and reread it. I'm in fresh territory as well. One thing I will say is, I, I was reading a book that ben, the writer, Brian Michael Bendis, actually teaches a comic book writing class at some university in Portland. And so I read the textbook that he wrote and something he says about his style of writing, and I'm a novice fiction writer at, at best, but is that he creates the characters and like sees where they go. I don't to yeah. something you said a few minutes ago is like, I don't think Bendis knows what to do. He knows how to set up a new version of Gwen Stacy. He knows how to play out the beats of her life, her father dying, her dying tragically or senselessly, even though he already took the bridge toss trope out with Mary Jane. He winds up doing stuff with 
Gwen that never happened in the mainstream Marvel universe. And right. again, that's something I appreciate. All of these characters are reimaginings of be it Dr. Octopus, Craven the Hunter, Norman Osborn. Honestly, one of the only characters that feels the same other than Uncle Ben is the Kingpin. <laughs> like everyone else, even J. Jonah Jameson, like is a little more different and realistic. Um or or our Bendis's quote unquote realistic take on what would they look like in Bendis's ultimate universe. So for that reason, I appreciate the zigging when they're zagging. You expect you're yeah. gonna do one thing with Gwen, there's gonna be a love triangle, and there's not. We're we're recasting Gwen as as a sister figure. Aunt May is not a frail woman. She's a woman that's gonna call and yell at your boss and ground you for a month, right? So I don't know. I, I just it kept me on my toes, all of these supporting characters. Yeah, it definitely did in terms of seeing how they were reimagined or recontextualized, I guess, within the Ultimates universe. And to your point, I do agree a lot of times the character, you might have an initial conception of a character and then where that character goes in the narrative could ultimately be very, very surprising. I just felt that the Gwen Stacy character went nowhere and I wish <laughs> she went, she she did something a little bit more interesting rather than cry in a dumpster. Of all of <laughs> At least she's not dead in a dumpster, Ryan. Jeez. Um, no, she's dead yeah. on the lawn. <laughs> At least for now. What? Uh, so obviously there's a lot of reimagining and rebooting happening here, right? From the Green Goblin to Aunt May to Captain Stacy, Gwen Stacy, Venom, the X-Men, the Black Cat, the, yeah. the Sinister Six. Of all of the carnage, Johnny Storm, Hobgoblin, uh, of all of these things, what was... Your your favorite and least favorite of the reimagining. I, I actually like the Sinister Six and the way they came together. It felt it was a different comic because it was more in the Ultimates universe. Where it was a crossover. It was an actual crossover. It, it with the art. Mark Bagley didn't draw it. It was a guy who drew in a similar style as Brian Hitch, who of course illustrated the Ultimate. So it was a much more realistic style. And it was one that looked at the, you know, Peter Parker was actually more of a supporting character in that. That one was more really about the machinations of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. And how Norman Osborn and all of these Spider-Man villains are viewed by the government and by the government agencies. So in a way, it felt like a, a different story. It was a different story. It felt like a, it felt totally very different. And I appreciated that. And you also get to see how these villains relate to each other. Because before, when they're just relating to Spider-Man, they're just like these cackling villains. The initial emergence of the Green Goblin honestly isn't that interesting. The initial emergence of Dr. Octopus, I don't even know what he wanted. So he's not that interesting. And it's, it was actually at this point where Electro, Green Goblin, Craven, Or actually scary. Octopus became scary, became interesting. So that, that and it, it also made sense. Why do they band together to become the Sinister Six? So I actually thought that was very, very effective. The least effective for me, I won't say, like, I actually have issues with the Carnage episode, the way the villain is handled, but that's a typical Spider-Man villain, not really a crossover. So I would say the least effective was any time the X-Men tended to appear with the exception of Wolverine. The Wolverine episode was funny. <laughs> but the X-Men, I have no idea what the hell they were doing. They just, the first one thing actually I noticed, and this is with all of the female heroes. So there's this shift away from where female superheroes are really sexy with strange cutouts in their <laughs> in their uniforms. And over the past maybe 10 years or so, the female superhero costumes have become a lot more practical. 
there seems to be less of a desire to sexualize them or to parade them in a way that caters to male 16 year olds. They're trying to like show them as role models for young women and young girls. And Ultimate Spider-Man definitely feels like it, it's right at that precipice, right? When you're starting to move <laughs> away from sexualization, but you still got to have that oval cutout right over the boobs. <laughs> well, even, anyways, <laughs> let me let me ask two questions and a short answer for this one. Had you read the Ultimate X Men comics? I had, but again, around the same time I read Ultimate Spider Man. So a lot of these things that I'm thinking about now are were not things I was thinking about when I was in my late teens, early twenties. Okay, fair, fair. There, there is a moment, and, and so these X Men that Bendis is writing, they're a Bendis version of the Ultimate X-Men, but they hang with, because I, I was buying all the Ultimate X-Men, all the Ultimate Fantastic Four, all the Ultimates at the same time. But there's a moment in, it's a volume seven, Irresponsible, where on a rooftop, Spider-Man yeah. meets Storm, Kitty Pride, and Jean Grey. And Jean is like, uh, I've tapped into your brain. You're the first guy who hasn't pictured me naked. Yeah. And it's like, until now. And he can't stop doing it once it's she a says funny, it. And- so, okay, actually, yeah, can we talk about that joke? Because it's funny initially, but then this is what my issue with the way Bendis portrays the X-Men is that they're just really, really fucking frivolous. Like, that that sequence goes on for about two pages where she's like, oh, you're the first guy who hasn't pictured me naked. And, of course, then he does, and it keeps going on and on. And it's funny because you see Jean Grey's reaction, but at the same time, realistically, and again, this is supposed to be a much more grounded take on superheroes. Realistically, she fucking set him up, and she's invading his head. So I'm thinking, lady, get the fuck out of here. Don't tell somebody to, to don't think about white polar bears and then get upset when they do start thinking about white polar bears. And that's— Well, all um, I'd say is, all I'd say is, this depiction of the X-Men— fits the shtick of the depiction of Ultimate X-Men. So it, it checked out. And it checked out with Peter Ultimate Peter Parker's sensibilities, frankly, clashing right. with the sensibilities of the X-Men. Even Ultimate Wolverine, the sen- uh, the thing I will give the Ultimate Universe credit for is, with, with some exceptions um, later on in their run, when they started switching creators out left and right, but they stayed consistent with who they said these characters were going to be from the beginning. And they continued to evolve them. And when shit happened with them, shit stuck. Like, so, I you guess, know, yeah. that moment with Jean Grey and Spider-Man, it never comes back. Right. But that is a moment in their history. And they will be talking about that joke. Should they run into each other five years from now? Like, I that's mean, the way the ultimate universe ran. I guess so. But they do they, though? They don't. Right. It really is a throwaway joke. And. And here's the other one that, that irritated me. It's, it's it's the conclusion of the Wolverine Spider-Man cr- uh, crossover, which I thought was funny when it was happening. But when the yeah. revelation was like, oh, yeah. Jean Grey did it just to fuck with Wolverine to teach him a lesson. It's like, dude, that is well, that's clear. irresponsible, isn't it? Ultimate Jean Grey is a bit of an asshole. That's what I'm saying. And so it's OK because it's not OK in the sense that, yeah, do you like it? But it's say what you will about the ultimate universe. They chose to be really fucking consistent with their characters. I, agree I hear with what you're saying. They're all assholes, right? The ultimates were the, what if the Avengers are assholes? And yeah. I agree. One thing I do like about the ultimate universe is that they are flawed, but at least they acknowledge that right in the ultimates. It is acknowledged that these guys are fascist. And I think they're, they're grown ups of the military industrial complex. Right. Whereas the X-Men are fucking teenagers, teenage punk rockers with a god complex because they're yeah, the next under, evolution of it and they act under, like it. 
Yeah, understood. And but I think there needed to be some acknowledgement of that in the Spider-Man comic, where Spider-Man might maybe he. But he does that. Of- he does that. So when he comes back to the X Mansion, I can't believe we're talking this much about this volume. But when he comes back to the X Mansion with the mutant kid, he's like, "You can't fucking do this, Professor X." That's, that's yes, not, that's right. One, that's extra that is, ju- yes, yes, and, yes, yes, and he calls imagines out. and he imagines getting into a fucking fight with them, and then he's like, "Oh, okay, that wouldn't work." Yes, I'm gonna but have I to think- trust you. I hear what you're saying, but I think, right, that's a good example of Spider-Man calling the X-Men out on their bullshit. But then when Jean Grey does his mind thing, he doesn't. And I think it's within Spider-Man's character to say, hey, man, that is really fucked up what you did to me. And the fact that he doesn't, it almost makes the comic feel like, oh, it's okay. This is all a joke. No, but okay, okay. But in real, grounding it in the real world, it's the first time that's ever happened to him. If the first, if if somebody like punches you in the face for the first time, you'd be like, "What the fuck, man!" You wouldn't be like, "That's okay." But you have a frame. Hang on, you actually have a framing of what being punched in the face is. You've seen movies of people getting punched in the face. Maybe you've been punched in the face. You've never had your mind invaded like that ever. I mean, I have if, a framing of what brain if, damage is, and if somebody causes no. <laughs> me brain damage, I'd be a little if, bit pissed if off. Anything, if, if anything. If that were to happen to me for the first time, I would be scared out of my mind to not right, piss off this right. person. Yes. Okay, that's another thing. He, he could be scared. He doesn't need to be like, Jean Grey, you're an asshole. He could be scared of her like, oh, fuck. This woman is scary. And that's what I like. Just some acknowledgement of what she did, <laughs> that what she did was fucked up, whether that's anger, fear. Instead, he's just sort of like, ah, just a fun little episode. Moving on. And that that's my issue with, you're right. But that's, Pete, yeah, but that's Peter Stick. That's that's Peter Stick. It's like, play it cool. Mm. Pretend you actually know what you're doing because I don't fucking know what I'm doing. I'm Peter Parker. What the hell is sure, going on? Sure, but, but then, then later on he reveals, right? Oh, that was kind of messed up. Like, again, you need to see Peter going processing these emotions. He processes some pretty complex emotions throughout this this book, this series. Why, why do the X-Men get a pass? Except for that one moment that we talked about earlier. That's, which that's is later, issue. which is which is later, which is like building and building and building to fucked up shit with the X-Men, fucked up shit with the X-Men, fucked up shit with the X-Men. I fucking uh, fell out of your plane. I've had too much of you assholes. You took my mask off. I'm going to kick all of your ass in my mind. Like, I just it's again, to be fair, like Peter oscillates between complete fucking panic attack and too cool for school holding it together. <laughs> I guess there's right. Even if he's you know, too cool for school. Um, or even if that's a facade, right? And there's a way to signal that. And I feel that's a missed opportunity to show some conflict in Peter's reaction to having his mind taken over. He should be conflicted about that. And he's not. He's conflicted when it happens. But after it's all said and done, after all of the laughs are kind of over, he's sort of like, okay, I guess that happened. So I guess I just feel like some of these moments should have a stronger reaction instead of just being played f- as a joke. Well, if I may, you could you could do both. Hang on, hang I on, mean, Peter. Hang on. So, and this is actually the conclusion. The one thing I really, other than the comic relief of uh, Spider-Man and the X-Men, not just the episode, uh, but our discussion about it, the last two issues of this volume show what actually Peter has on his mind. He doesn't have time to deal with mutant bullshit because. How long have I been away from home? When I show up, my aunt is going to lose her shit. He's constantly worried, be it around Wolverine and the X-Men, or having to swing into New York City to save someone, about making it home, protecting his secret, and protecting the ones he loves. Because he comes home from the X-Mansion, and I think I think two of the best 
issues in this entire run that we've at least read are him coming home and having to confront Aunt May. And the following issue to show Aunt May talking to her therapist. It's an issue that barely uh, has Peter in it. So I have a disagreement here, but I actually had some issues with the way the... <sighs> Aunt May basically like I she's one note. She is one note. Look, I, I appreciate that she's a little bit more spry than the dowdy grandmotherly version that we are used to from the comics. And then she's a lot more fiery, but she has one reaction, which is, Peter, why are you like this? Oh, ha, ha, it's making me hurt her. So you're grounded. That's her reaction. And then you get this one moment of insight into her character. How do you get it? You get it through her having this confessional with a therapist, which is the laziest fucking way you could reveal a character. The only worst thing, the only <laughs> lazier thing Bendis could do is have her standing at Uncle Ben's tombstone and confessing all her deepest, darkest <laughs> thoughts. Did you ever get in trouble with your parents, like coming home from being out too late and having that conversation with your parents? Dude, I was an angel. I was a perfect Asian angel. Okay. Well, <laughs> I've, I've, had that been in, well I've been in trouble. Yes. Okay. So that moment of getting in trouble felt real sure. to me because by the time I read this, I was probably in my sure. mid twenties and that had happened in my late teens. So it felt real. You're right. But I, up until, hang on, hang on. I, and this is actually me as a reader, just appreciating it. I actually didn't know what my parents were going through. I could not empathize with my parents' worry for their son. Everything my parents were going through with their son not calling, not coming home, them being worried, is he on the drugs, all these things. And fine. Is it a lazy exposition? Fine. But as a reader, to we've been seeing the whole world through Peter's eyes, and I loved seeing the world through May's eyes for just a little bit. I guess and it made me love like, her more. I guess it could have been nice to see it dramatized rather than delivered as a monologue to a therapist. It's not the, I don't object to seeing the world through her eyes. In fact, I would like to see more of it. I just feel like Bendis was like, okay, we need to dramatize some of what Aunt May is going through. Let's put her on a couch and talking to somebody. <laughs> so that's I don't my, know that's how else you would do it. it. How else would you do it? I actually don't know how you would do it. Because I, I like the fact that could, these are things, well, uh, the, I like the fact that these are things unsaid to Peter. Like, I don't right. want that drama playing out with Peter. Do you, but, and do you who have, does she have uh, to play it out with? Well, that do you have a sense of what other people are going through, even if they don't tell you directly? You can pick things up in the subtext of the dialogue. It just requires you to be nuanced with the writing. <laughs> Maybe I'm being too harsh, though. I don't know. <laughs> well, you are right. No, but look, Bendis, Bendis likes dialogue. And uh, a Bendis, I don't want to say he's an acquired taste, but you either like the Bendisy dialogue in anything he writes, right? Anything he writes, Powers, Avengers, Ultimate stuff. And so if you're not ready to be on the Bendis dialogue train where he just writes these quippy back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I guess what I'd say is Bendis likes to brute force through dialogue. I don't know if he puts that nuance in. And you do show... I'm trying to defend some of his choices around May because she does show an escalating sense of getting upset with Peter over and over and over again. And it finally comes to a head and blows up at the end of this seemingly innocent adventure with the X-Men that they're real world stakes. And to back it into the X-Men argument again, Peter doesn't have time to be upset about all the bullshit of the Ultimates and the X-Men because he's got to fucking get home or he's going to be in trouble. 
His real world stakes are at home. They're very different writers, right? Adrian Tomine, for instance, versus Bendis. Adrian Tomine is very good at characterizing people through silences. People, people, people reveal their intentions, but they never say it directly. And Bendis is very blunt about it. He's like, here's a sledgehammer with a message, pow, right in your face. And I guess, and this is a personal aesthetic, but I, I prefer like what Tomine does or what Charles Burns does, where a lot of the interpretation of the character comes through the subtext because mm-hmm. it's a lot more enigmatic that way you're not sure if your interpretation is right you think you are but you're not and versus bendis it's like i'm going to talk to my therapist this is exactly why i took in gwen stacy because i needed a project because my husband's dead oh, okay I, I yeah interesting motivation cool but <laughs> jesus very 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 blunt about it you know it is a superhero comic made for teenagers versus an independent fantagraphics book I, yeah, you're right. And maybe this, again, this speaks to my where my sensibility is now, yeah, right? Fair, I, what fair, I, I prefer fair. X over Y. That's allowed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanna, one, one major plot point uh, I would love to uh, pick your brain on, or, or hear you shit on, is the whole Norman Osborn, Harry Osborn plot thread. Because it keeps coming back to that, right? It's tied into Spider-Man's origin. It is tied into Norman Osborn's fucked up fanatical interest norman osborne as a corporate tycoon norman osborne as an escaped terrorist norman osborne as the thing that keeps peter and mary jane up at night scared it comes back over and over and over again and this will be a thread that will carry through all the way till the end how did you feel about it too much too little lazy i don't know i i I actually think he could have set up harry a little bit more in the beginning because we all know that harry is is not a happy son and that he eventually does crack under the pressure. And I think that is actually a missed opportunity to see that build. You see the camaraderie. Yeah. Agreed. He, Harry, Agreed. He's a popular, cool, good-looking kid in the beginning. And then he vanishes after the Green Goblin emerges. And we don't know where he is. He's in therapy. And then he comes back for a little bit and he goes away. And he comes back to plead with his dad. And he goes away and he comes back. So it almost feels like, again, you have you start out with the character and you make it up as you go along. And this is an instance where... If this weren't serialized, I think Bendis could have done a much better job building up Harry and his relationship with Peter Parker and the conflict he has with his father in multiple drafts. But of course, he's locked in and then he's got to focus on the Green Goblin. He's got to focus on other stuff. And so Harry falls by the wayside until he's needed. And when he's needed, he essentially becomes just another version of his dad, at at least as far as I've read up to, which is the Hobgoblin episode. So again, it's like, the setup is promising, but it's a missed opportunity. What what I find really interesting is you're dead on. Could have done more with it at the beginning. We pulled through the threads as necessary conveniently at the end. And as I mentioned earlier, Bendis was a story consultant on the three Sam Raimi movies. And what I find interesting is the beginning of Harry's arc in the beginnings of the arc with James Franco and his dad, they planted the seeds better, in my opinion, in the first two Sam Raimi yeah. movies. However, <laughs> a massive however, I think they stuck the landing a little bit better in the end with Ultimate Spider-Man, and they absolutely did not stick the landing with Harry Osborn in either the Sam Raimi movies or the Andrew Garfield movies. So it's, I don't think Harry's arc has ever been done well from start yeah. to finish. It always feels like a better idea conceptually, and then you see it in action, and you're just like, whew. You're missing a couple of pieces there, buddy. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it just never feels particularly believable why 
Harry flips. It does actually feel, you actually do get a sense of his whole world is coming apart in the Bendis version. But when it finally does and he becomes a hobgoblin, it's like, I have seen this multiple times before. It feels like almost every enemy that Spider-Man faces is like a guy that he knows. And he's like, oh, now I'm a monster. Rah, 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 rah. Let's fight. And then end of the episode. So I have my third to last question for you, Ryan. Why does Mary Jane never listen to Peter? <laughs> yeah, why is Peter so hung up on that? It almost feels a little bit like domineering, doesn't it? No, I'm okay with like I. He doesn't want her to die, like, but she doesn't yeah, listen. I, I she get, has a death I get, wish. I I I guess uh, yeah, I don't know. Like so so I don't know. I don't know. That was it, it, to me. It was just like. <laughs> This almost feels like, I don't know, I, I, I wish I had more developed thoughts about this. And I will confess, I was skimming that section. All I saw were the big <laughs> explanation points, ex- but the big block letters, why don't you ever listen? And and Peter like yelling and screaming and frothing at the mouth. And, mouth, and all I could think of was the abusive father in, in that, that previous comic we read, Monsters. So I'm just, so like... At that point, I was skimming over some of the dialogue. I understand that she he would tell her to stay away from Harry. What? Here's the, the thing with Peter. He never really explains anything to Mary Jane, right? He says, stay away from Harry because he's insane. But not like, why is he insane? What do you think is going to happen? So it's like he just gives her these vague, ominous warnings. And then he gets mad at her that she doesn't listen and, to him. And, 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 that's he scream, a- and, 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 and he screams at her. And it's just like, that's why I think it's abusive. It's a great character yeah. flaw yeah. of Peter's. And there's even a moment somewhere in like volume 10, 11, 12, where it might have even been volume 13 or somewhere in there where he's trying to tell Mary something, but then he gets pulled away by S.H.I.E.L.D. or something. And then later on, bad shit happens. And she's like, you never told me this. There's this constant like missed connection. I'm assuming you can read my mind to b- between the two of them, and they clearly yeah. can't. So it's it's a very flawed. Human That's actually yeah, and that actually is like a good aspect to that relationship. A good aspect in that oh. it's it's a common problem with every relationship. Most most problems with relationships come from this inability or this lack of communication and you see that happening over and over with peter and mary jane in fact there's one episode where she says okay i'll tell you what i'm thinking and peter's like yeah i don't want to have to to read your mind it's just that when it comes to it ahead it it just is so broad it almost feels like one guy just screaming at his girlfriend yeah yeah but i think there is a kernel of, of emotional truth to that i think it's just something that again I don't know. Like if, if you, if he signals, Oh, Mary Jane, I don't quite, I don't have all of the information from you. Right. I don't understand why you, why you just say he's insane. He seems perfectly normal to me. I'm going to ask him. Then it's a little bit, you could see Mary Jane's side more. And I think maybe what's missing there, Mary mm-hmm. Jane's interiority and how she's processing Peter's warnings. Would you recommend this comic book to someone else? Maybe it depends. Like, it's really long, Roman. So <laughs> it, it depends. And maybe who, like, to an adult who's not interested in Spider-Man, probably not. To a hmm. kid who wants to be introduced to Spider-Man, yeah, this is a pretty good introduction. Fun fact, because of this reread, I bought 10 volumes used on eBay to give to my friend's 10-year-old son this Christmas. I so. think that's that's probably great. Yeah, I think that's great, right? It's I think that's definitely the audience it it's geared towards. I, I 
I don't think I'd recommend this to somebody who isn't already interested in superhero comics. That's fair. That's fair. Well, I think the thing I really appreciate about this run is it show again we've read a couple of superhero comics that do it well i'm not saying this is a perfect thing but it's like oh what if there were actual stakes what if there were real characters and something i care about what if a, a writer and an artist stuck with it for the long run together to see where they could go with these characters and i think that's really unique in the world of superheroes so yeah. you don't see this thing being done in the genre those three things very specifically there are stakes to everything that happens here there are real characters yeah. at play. Yeah. And I think maybe, I don't know what the creators thought coming into the Ultimates. Was this going to be a limited run? Should characters have an arc? But I do think unburdened by decades of convoluted continuity, it did free up the writers to make decisions that they probably wouldn't have made if this were an ongoing series. And eventually, I think the Ultimates universe became an ongoing series and then it merged Marvel Universe. But for at least the early stages, I thought the Ultimate Universe was a complete success from a storytelling standpoint and from a standpoint of breathing new life into these familiar characters. Much greater creative success than, say, Heroes Reborn. <laughs> Which we will never be reading. Which we will never podcast. which we'll never read. <laughs> I hope not. Rob Liefeld is banned from this podcast. <laughs> Rob Liefeld and his muscular man titties and multiple pouches. And lack of ankles. And lack of ankles and feet. My goodness. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, I guess we, we could turn this into another 45 minutes of Rob Liefeld bashing. But instead, I'm going to just ask you, Roman, I think I know, but what are we going to read next week? Oh, baby. We're reading another 13 volumes of Ultimate Spider-Man. We're going to see the conclusion of Peter Parker's story, which we're ruining already. So uh, I guess if you don't want to read this comic book, tune in next week and hear some more Ultimate Spider-Man. Or just fucking go to the movies and watch another Marvel movie and get COVID Omicron. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, perfect way to end an episode of Quarantine Comics. Get Omicron. You know, I, I was really afraid we we're going to have to change this to vaccinated comics, but we got, we got another variant of concern coming. So I think we've got another two to four years of this podcast stops, Brian. All right. Well, I hope we can pick up a few more readers over that time period. <laughs> or listeners, even. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Jones. Spider-Man, Spider-Man Does whatever a spider can Spins a web any size Catches thieves just like flies Look out, here comes a Spider-Man Is he strong? Listen, bud He's got radioactive blood Can he swing from a thread? Take a look Overhead, hey there, there goes the Spider-Man In the chill of night, at the scene of crime 
Like a streak of the light You rise just in time Spider-Man, Spider-Man Friendly neighborhood Spider-Man Wealth and fame he's ignored Action is his reward Look out, here comes the Spider-Man Spider-Man, Spider-Man Friendly neighborhood Spider-Man Wealth and fame He's ignored Action is his reward Look out Here comes the Spider-Man In the chill of the night At the scene of crime Like a streak of light You rise just in time Just like flies, look out Here comes the Spider-Man Spider-Man, Spider-Man Friendly neighborhood, Spider-Man Wealth and fame, he's ignored Action is his reward, look out There goes the Spider-Man
Great Big Bang Look, we're a Vanessa Hey!